Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Make It Count, with a message titled, Not Ashamed, Part 2. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've been talking about what to do with something precious or something that's extremely valuable. What would you do if you owned something like that? You know, I understand that the most expensive yacht in the world is worth about $4.8 billion. I mean, what would you do if you had that? I mean, park it in a marina and go for coffee? Or let me talk about a more reasonable price. I understand there's a 1963 Ferrari GTO out there that they say is worth $52 million U.S., I know of a diamond necklace that's priced at 55 million U.S. I mean, would you wear that to church next Sunday? Probably not. In fact, I don't know what people who own rare and expensive things actually do with them. I understand it is a problem, but I think it's a problem I'll never have to deal with. But there's something far more precious than anything this world has to offer, and it's our salvation. It's eternity filled with endless joy and purpose. Nothing but nothing can be compared with that. In our study of 2 Timothy, we have come to understand that Paul thought his salvation was so precious that he was quite willing to die for it. There was a time when Nero, the emperor of Rome, was rounding up Christians. And the Roman historian Tacitus describes what happened during the reign of Nero. Nero had burned a part of the city of Rome to make room for his palace, and then the fire had spread further and had burned a great part of the city. And in order to cover up his tracks, he decided to blame it on Christians. Now, this is what Tacitus writes. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all Christians who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. I mean, just think of how horrible that is. And it was during this time that both Peter and Paul both died for their faith. And it's against this background that we hear Paul telling Timothy, and here I'm reading 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And that, according to Paul, is what you do with the most valuable thing that you can possibly possess. No matter what it costs, don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, and don't be ashamed to fully identify with the servants of Jesus. When the state decides to make certain aspects of our faith illegal, there's a choice as to what we should do with the gospel. We could decide to alter the gospel enough so that Jesus is no longer an offense. Indeed, that is what some have in history decided to do with the gospel. And in so doing, they're ashamed. Well, Paul's clear. If the state decides that Jesus should no longer be proclaimed truly, he will still proclaim the gospel. And Timothy, when he sees his mentor and his friend imprisoned in Rome and might even fear for himself, he has to make a decision. He must decide to identify with Paul. So the second thing we noticed is that Paul asks Timothy that in order to be proud of the gospel, that would necessitate that Timothy would be able to always clearly articulate the gospel. 
And so at the end of verse 8, Paul spoke of a preparation to suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And then in the beginning of verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. The gospel, says Paul, is about Jesus who saved us. Now, just so that we're clear, that formula in verse 9 is both salvation, that is forgiveness of our sins, as well as being called to a holy calling, that is, that we are being transformed to be like Christ, and that we're also being used in the service of Christ, and that is the story of the gospel. But here's the question. It's crucial. How are we saved? So let's again read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Well, it's all a mouthful, but let me say four things from that passage. Number one, I'm not saved by something I do, like trying hard or going to church regularly or doing my best or even choosing to follow Jesus. I'm not saved by keeping the law. I have not contributed anything to my salvation. I can do nothing and I did nothing. Not because of work, says Paul. That's essential to understanding the gospel. Salvation is done by Christ. Number two, Then Paul says, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, that idea that God has called us according to his purpose and not our purpose, I mean, that's strange to modern Bible readers. I mean, we tend to think that God called us that we might reach our full potential or something like that. But the idea that God called us according to his own purpose, well, that's an idea that's found frequently in Paul's writings. You know, for instance, the very famous verse that so many of us love to quote, and rightly so. Well, that's Romans 8:28. For we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God. But did you know that that's not where the verse ends? The verse adds in describing those who love God as those who are called according to his purpose. That's to say, It is God himself who has a fixed and definite plan for you when you are saved. When God called us to be his own, a calling that Paul assures us is all of grace, and yet he called us for a purpose he had for our lives, not to fulfill the purpose that we had for our lives. So to put it quite plainly, stop telling God what you want out of your life. Rather, bow the knee before him and ask him to show you what is his purpose for your life. And that's important to Timothy as Paul's telling him not to be ashamed of Jesus or of Paul in these days of intense persecution. Know this, Paul says to Timothy, you were saved not by works, but also you were saved not to get what you wanted out of life, but to experience what God wants for your life, even if that includes suffering for the name of Christ. And so, number one, we're saved by grace. Number two, we're saved for his purpose. Now, number three, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Ah, yeah. The purpose for my salvation was established before I was born. I was chosen in eternity past. And then when Christ was revealed, Paul uses the word manifest, or we might say when Jesus was shown forth, that also was the time when your purpose was made known. You know, that's why getting back to verse 8, 
you know, we can see again the words that he saved and called us to a holy calling. That's one package. The holy calling surely has to do with a call to live the holy life, but it also deals with the fact that God has called you to do something, to fulfill the purpose that he has fixed for you in eternity past. So to repeat, one, saved by grace, two, saved for a purpose, three, chosen from eternity past, and now four, having the assurance of eternal life. Look again at verse 10, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, that's why you can afford not to be ashamed of the gospel. But in the day, even of cruel and evil persecution, you can remain unashamed of the gospel as if you live in the day when all men speak well of the gospel. It doesn't matter. In each and every situation, never be ashamed of the gospel and remember to articulate to everyone the truth of the gospel. All right, we're ready to move on. Paul now uses himself as an example of what he's speaking about. And I'm reading the next verses, verses 11 to 12a. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. See, since Paul has articulated that our holy calling, that is, what God had decided we should do before eternity began, it's now natural for him to add that he himself was appointed three things, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Now, for Paul, that was a part of the package that he received at his salvation. And the key word here is the word appointed. Throughout his lifetime, he's keenly aware that the role that he's playing is the one that God appointed for him. And if you think about it, that explains Paul's attitude towards those who want to stop him from carrying out his ministry. You know, he was driven out of a number of towns, either by officials or by unruly mobs. He was constantly being slandered. In Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead, and yet he recovered. He was illegally whipped and thrown into prison in Philippi, only to win the jailer to faith in Christ. In Thessalonica, an unruly mob attacked the home he was staying in to get at him. In Athens, he was mocked. In Corinth, they tried to get rid of him but couldn't. In Ephesus, he was thrown into an arena where he was called to fight wild animals to save his life. There was a riot in that city because of him. And that was just the beginning. And people were saying, stop preaching. And Paul was saying, I can't. I'm under orders. I've been appointed by God to do that. So that's why I'm not ashamed. Oh my, if only we had the same attitude. Each month we send out a free monthly update email that provides unique ministry content that includes our five and five audio program. Five questions in five minutes in conversation with those intimately involved in the mission and vision of Back to the Bible Canada. The email also includes advanced resource offers, insight into current and future programming, and the ways that you can be involved. The ministry update email is available simply by subscribing online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. In the ministry update email in February, expect to hear more information about our international ministries and the unique impact that is being made in the world with Back to the Bible Canada programs, resources, and conferences. For more information or to send your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Paul had an appointment from God. He says, for one, 
He was appointed as an apostle, and of course that's unique to him. I mean, to be an apostle means that he has been uniquely chosen by Jesus to speak on his behalf and to write scripture. I mean, none of us has that. He's also a preacher and a teacher. He's made it his business to instruct people in the gospel, and his unwillingness to shut up has brought persecution down on his head. And one of the things each of us can take from this passage is that knowing the gospel is directly related to proclaiming the gospel. And we come back to the issue of not being ashamed. And quite frankly, each of us can do this. Look, you can speak of Christ whenever you have an opportunity. Has Christ done something in your life recently? Why don't you tell somebody? Are you overwhelmed at the kindness of God through Christ in your life? Why are you keeping quiet about that? Did you pray about something and receive a glorious answer to your prayers? I mean, why would you not tell that to your work colleagues, to your classmates at school, to your naturally occurring relationships, especially among those who have not known Christ? Why would you be ashamed? And here's what we do. We determine never to be ashamed of the gospel. We determine to articulate the gospel when the opportunity affords itself, that Christ died for our sins. We actively proclaim the gospel when we can. When Paul is bold for the gospel, the good news about Jesus, we know that the kingdom of Satan struck back, and now here he is awaiting his execution. But never in his life is he more bold, and why is that? Look at 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. It speaks about his appointment as a preacher and a teacher, and Paul now adds, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I want us here to try to remember the scene. You know, he's in a dark, dripping cell, you know, a forgotten man to many, ready to be discarded by the Romans, and he says, I'm not ashamed. I love what John Kelvin said about this. He said, This is the only refuge believers should resort to when the world condemns them as being lost and hopeless. They should think that it is enough to have God's approval for what would happen if they relied on men. From this, we can see clearly the great difference between faith and human opinion, end quote. Paul says, I know whom I believed. The God he knows never lies. Indeed, he cannot lie. When God speaks, he does what he says, no exceptions ever. I know whom I have believed. My God is the promise keeper. All his promises are true and amen in Christ. My God is of greater value than all the prisons on earth and all the courtrooms that would sentence me to those prisons. I know whom I have believed. And by the way, all of us must say the same thing. We need to know our God well enough that we tremble in his presence, not in the presence of the worst that evil men can inflict on us. Now, notice again the last part of the sentence, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So let's start with the end of the sentence, shall we? Paul seems to be saying that he knows that something has been entrusted to him by God. Literally, in the Greek, he says that God will guard the deposit. Now, now here we have to get a bit technical, but there are two ways to read this sentence. First, it might be correct to translate the sentence as he is able to guard the deposit of that which I have entrusted to him. Now, if that's what Paul is saying, he means I've entrusted my life to God. And now that I stand before the moment of my death, I know that God will eternally guard the deposit of my life that's been lived to him. My eternal life is now secure. Now, if that's what Paul intended to say, it was a lovely thing to say indeed. He's entrusted his soul to God. He's confident 
that he will live in God's presence. God is guarding him even when the executioner's axe hangs over him. See, another possibility is that way in which we should translate this is that God will guard the deposit that has been entrusted to Paul. You know, in that case, the deposit would be the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. Paul might be saying here, look, after I'm dead, how can I be assured that my life's work of making Christ known that deposit, how do I know it's going to carry on? And so he might be saying here, look, I don't fear that the gospel will falter after I'm gone. God is going to guard that deposit. And I think it's the second thing that makes most sense in the light of the book of 2 Timothy. You know, there's an old Canadian poem entitled In Flanders Fields, and one line of the poem pictures the fallen Canadian soldier on the battlefield saying, pick up our quarrel with the foe. To you from falling hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. That is, I may fall on the battlefield, but I'm counting on you, my comrade, to pick up the cause after me. Now, Paul is not counting on Timothy. He's counting on God to guard the deposit. Yeah, it's true that Timothy must carry on after Paul's gone, but but God is able to guard the deposit. And Paul's not saying, look, I'm so convinced in my ability to disciple the next generation. He's rather saying, I know that God will guard the deposit. I know, he says, in whom I have believed. You know, Paul has learned to count on the gospel. And how about you? You know, if you press on in radical commitment to the gospel, perhaps in your giving, in your witnessing, in your service, in something, and it now costs you to serve Christ, are you prepared to count on the truths of the gospel? What else do you do with the gospel? Well, let's go to the end of the section in verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In short, even though God will guard the deposit, Timothy must do so as well. And before we go further, notice that in verse 14, Paul uses the word deposit. The word's a banking term. You know, you could imagine a very wealthy man. Let's say it's Warren Buffett. He deposits $1 million in your bank account, and then he says, guard that. Well, you'd instinctively know what he's got in mind. He'd say, don't squander it. Invest wisely. Don't lose the wealth. And that's what's happened to Timothy. Paul's made a deposit in Timothy, training him in sound doctrine, making sure he understood the gospel, But it's not just that Timothy took notes from Paul's lecture materials and then memorized them. No, no. Paul mentions to him a pattern or a model. The pattern or model is Paul's life. The sound words came with a life that was filled with faith and love. And it is this that Timothy was to guard. The gospel that comes through a holy life, Paul says, guard that. Make sure that it's never lost. But how? Paul says, with the Holy Spirit. So why does he add that? Well, I think he does because he knows how strong the enemy is. The enemy will use persecution, hardship, discouragement, false teachers, confusion, even sin, and much more to tempt and derail Timothy. Paul knows that the enemy may have lost the battle when it came to the first generation of the followers of Jesus. The apostles and others have spread the gospel widely. They've won many to faith in Christ, but the next generation is coming, and then one will come after that, and all that's required is to subvert the next generation, even though the first one has been strong. And so the command is, listen, Timothy, guard the deposit by the power of the Spirit. You won't be able to do it on your own. How many of you know that there are those who reject the gospel because of the pattern of life of those who claim to be believers today? That's troubling. 
I'm always troubled when I hear that. They're no longer defending and guarding the gospel because they have lived in a way that causes great harm to the testimony of Jesus. And then the world looks at those Christians and they simply can't believe. But let's get back to Paul. He was not ashamed. You know, when Paul died, having not been ashamed, he joined an august company indeed. Joseph was thrown into prison and he remained faithful. David was hunted like a wild animal and remained faithful. Jeremiah was thrown into prison and called a traitor, but he remained faithful. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he remained faithful. John the Baptist was beheaded and he remained faithful to the end. In short, Paul would also be beheaded just as John had been and Peter would be crucified upside down. So what can we say about all of that? How can any of that be compared to Jesus our Lord? who was hung between two thieves while the insults of the crowd were directed at him. And yet he entrusted his soul into the hands of his father. He was faithful to the end. Look, I don't know what following Jesus and articulating his gospel and not being ashamed might cost you. But would you not want to be in the company of those who are now dressed in white robes? Never be ashamed of the gospel. Live your life carrying out that purpose that God has given you before the creation of the world. Hold up your head and don't bow it down in shame. You are a servant of the King. It's a privilege. Proclaim it and don't let men cause you to bow your head. Lift it up. Your redemption draws nigh. Thanks, John. John... Do you think it's safe to say that essential to being bold proclaimers of the gospel is the knowledge of the reward that lies before us? Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever going to be bold unless they have their eyes firmly set upon that which Christ has promised for all believers. Um, because the, the temptation will always be that we you know, only live for this world, and when we think that way, uh, then we'll become timid because we'll think about all the things that we might lose here in this life. And so that takes away and it robs us of our courage. But if our hope is in glory, and if we know that's our true destiny, uh, then we recognize that we gladly forsake all things for the cause of Christ. So, uh, yeah, think much of eternity and then be bold and live like it. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. February is International Ministries Month, a time to celebrate the ministry work being accomplished in partnership with our friends in India, Sri Lanka, Curaçao, and beyond. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to providing ministry support, Bible teaching programming, resources, content, and international pastors' Bible teaching conferences impacting hundreds of national pastors. Most recently, funds were provided to Back to the Bible India to translate, produce, and distribute thousands of Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, throughout India in 10 different languages. God is at work through these opportunities, and your gracious gifts have provided the means to partner in ministry far beyond our borders. This month, would you consider an additional international ministry gift to help reach the 2022 International Projects goal of $50,000. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. 
thank you in advance. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.